Final seconds of the game. A chance to score and the chance has gone begging. If your business's commerce platform keeps missing the target on golden opportunities, get the MVP you deserve. Get Shopify. <laughs> Shopify is the commerce platform revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide. Whether you're a garage entrepreneur or IPO ready, Shopify is the only tool that you need to start, run, and grow your business without the struggle. Shopify puts you in control of every sales channel. So whether you're selling signed football boots from Shopify's in-person POS system or you're vending vintage shirts on Shopify's all-in-one e-commerce platform, you are covered. And once you've reached your audience, Shopify has the internet's best converting checkout to help you turn them from browsers to buyers. What I love about Shopify is how, no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the US. And Shopify is truly a global force, powering Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across over 170 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. This is Possibility, powered by Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash ranks, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com forward slash ranks to take your business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash ranks. Looking for a fun way to win 25 times your money this football and basketball season? Test your skills on Prize Picks, the most exciting way to play daily fantasy sports. Just select two or more players, pick more or less on their projection for a wide variety of stats, and place your entry. It's as easy as that. If you have the skills, you can turn $10 into $250 with just a few taps. Easy gameplay, quick withdrawals, and injury insurance on your picks are what make Prize Picks the number one daily fantasy sports app. Ready to test your skills? Join the Prize Picks community of more than 7 million players who have already signed up. Right now, Prize Picks will match your first deposit up to $100. Just visit prizepicks.com/play100 and use code play100. That's code play100 at prizepicks.com/play100 for a first deposit match up to $100. Prize Picks, daily fantasy sports made easy. Hello, this is international football commentator Derek Ray, and you're listening to the Ranks FC podcast. Rank Squad and welcome to Ranks FC. We're back with the second episode this week. My name is Jack Collins and I'll be your host today. And joining me once again is the transfer guru, Mr. Dean Jones. How you doing, mate? I'm good. I just want to make sure that nobody's feeling like out of sync here, like you've got a bit of jet lag because these episodes are kind of ending up all over the place. Um, obviously, like Last week, me and you were on separate podcasts here on Ranks. And then suddenly this week, like we've got an early drop and then we're back on a Friday. Everyone's like, whoa, what's going on? But we're just getting through the summer, people. We're giving you extra content and uh, we're just making this work the Ranks way. So, um, yeah, this this is more of a traditional-ish uh, podcast because we're back to uh, the same structure of the show, really. And we're going to start with with things we love. Mm. Um 
But I tell you what, all I've got to say is this show is a little bit different because I think today is going to be one of the most fun chats we've ever had on Ranks. I'm good. I'm excited. I mean, we had a, I had a wonderful chat uh, on Wednesday's episode with the brilliant Mina Ibrahim, who, if you haven't listened to, you should very much go and listen to. It was a preview of the Women's World Cup, which is underway by the time you are listening to this. We had a, all of my fingers crossed. I'm recording ahead of this first game, but... Please, God, Ireland will have shocked the world uh, and beaten Australia on their own turf in the opening game. Uh, I've got my fingers very much crossed for that one. But before we go into today's main episode, we're going to be talking about some of the most expensive Premier League transfers ever. Off the back of some of the deals and steals that are being spoken about this summer, let's start with things we love. Let's go back to basics, Dean. What have you got for me? Mate, the thing I love is the modern day Ronaldo versus Messi battle. This is no longer just Ronaldo versus Messi. It's no longer who is the most skilled individual. This has moved on. It's now Saudi Arabia versus USA. It's Saudi Pro League versus MLS. Cristiano Ronaldo has waged war. He's gone for it. He's gone deep straight away. So on the back of Messi's unveiling into Miami this week, Ronaldo's been asked, he's been asked, you know, would you move to MLS? He said, I think the Saudi league is much better than the United States. My team is Al Nasser, 100%. It's a fact. Yeah, we know, mate. We've, we, have, we have noticed that you, you've joined this team in Saudi Arabia. We noticed. He said, uh, it was going to take a year, but actually it was six months. I was wrong for six months. But I knew this was going to happen because in the Italian league, when I went there, it was dead. And then it was rejuvenated. Where Cristiano goes, it generates greater interest. And I knew it was going to be like that. I'm sure that next season, more stars will go to Saudi Arabia. So he's digging out MLS here. He's saying that Saudi Pro League is better. And let's just look at some of the players that have followed him. He's right. Like He's set the bar. He's, he's changed the, the, the culture and the... Uh, the way that players feel about moving to Saudi Pro League. Let's not forget how much these players are being paid to go there. But nevertheless, he's got N'Golo Kante there, Karim Benzema. Jota's gone there from Celtic. You've got Ruben Neves. You've got Kaladu Koulibaly, Sergei Milinkovic-Savic. Uh, Ronaldo's own team, Al Nasser. He's got uh, Luis Gustavo. He's got the mighty David Ospina. He's got Marcelo Brozovic with him. Um, who else have we got? Al Ali. We've got Firmino. You've got Edouard Mendy. Um, you know, the stars are starting to arrive. I think in total, there's probably about 20 right now. Uh, their aim is to get 50. So he's not wrong. People are following him to Saudi Arabia. But it's not proof that the league works. It's not proof that it's any good. And MLS have tried all this before. So having a dig at Messi saying, oh, MLS isn't as good. Well, actually, not necessarily true because the product in MLS is... As good as it's ever been, I would say. Mm. The competitive of that, that league is as good as it's ever been. And I probably enjoy watching it as much, if not more, than ever before. And this is the time when they've come through trying this superstar thing. So, okay, yes, Ronaldo, you are getting big players go to Saudi right now. But MLS have had Beckham. They've had Steven Gerrard. They've had Ibrahimovic. They've had Frank Lampard. They've had David Villa. They've had Thierry Henry. They've had Robbie Keane. They've had Chikorito. They've got Shakiri. They've got Chiellini, they've got Insigne. Actually, the two that are most successful, I'd say, in terms of like names going to MLS, are probably Ricky Pooge at LA Galaxy and Carlos Vela at LAFC. Right two, now, yeah. Yeah, right now. And they're not, of all the stars, 
they're not really like considered stars in Europe. So actually, this philosophy that all these big names go to Saudi Arabia doesn't necessarily mean it's actually any good. They've got to have the motivation levels to make it work. And we don't know yet that that's actually even going to be there. So the thing I love is the war that is now coming, which is Saudi Pro League versus MLS, to see which actually is the best. And I want them to set up a competition, actually, whereby the winner of Saudi Pro League plays the winner of MLS. I think that's where this needs to be headed. Wow. And I, we'll, we'll see if it, if it ends in a Ronaldo versus Messi uh, game one day. I don't think it will. No, me neither. Uh, but... but Let's see what happens. Let's see which one is the best. Well, I just went on to Team Form's league rankings in the world, and currently MLS okay. is 56th, and the Saudi Arabian Pro League is 68th. So there's a 12-league 12, 12 gap. In the middle okay. of this gap, let me just read you out some of, this, some of this. The Premier League in Belarus, the A-League in Australia, Spain's Segunda B, the Scottish Premiership, China's Super League, Argentina's Torneo Federal A, England's League One, Azerbaijan's Premier League, Switzerland's Challenge League, Brazil's Serie D, and Venezuela's Primera Division. So it's a big competition wow. there for Saudi Arabia to climb up. Wow. Yeah. yeah, I had no idea. League One. There you go. That's uh that's, that's the that's the bar that's been set. So it'll be very interesting wow. to see how that how that bar gets climbed. But yeah, I mean Absolutely. I agree. The war of words has been the it's everything words, what you yeah. expect, isn't it? It's it's the same old, same old. It's also, I think, uh you know, Messi's there chilling, lying on a sunbed with his World Cup trophy, having a good time. <laughs> and uh, I think there is an element of, you know, a lot of these players have moved and there's a lot of money being thrown about, as you say. The question now becomes, where is the relevance? And, you know, that's going to be a major question. And I think that it will come. I think there will be broadcast deals. I think the more big names that are attracted, the more people will be interested. And, and that's how it's going to be. But mm. the question is how that actually pans out when it comes to, I think even things like the Asian Champions League, you know, and and, and the questions over there, you know, Saudi Arabia's main rival in, in regards to, you know, the Asian Champions League has been Japan. They are the two nations that have dominated that competition in recent mm -hmm. years. And so I think a lot of the question marks now are, okay, let's worry less about overhauling people halfway across the world. Can, you know, Al-Halal are Asia's most successful club in the Champions League. So that needs to be made. But Japan are its most successful nation. Can Saudi Arabia overhaul Japan to become the undisputed kings of the Asian Champions League first before you start battering down any other hatches about which leagues across the world are better than which? Because that's a very difficult thing to judge. Absolutely, yeah. You know, Ronaldo knows it could have been him. It could have been him rocking up uh, uh, into Miami right now. There's, there's definitely a world where that could have happened. I'm surprised, to be honest, that it didn't happen. Um, but the Saudi stuff came out the blue. Obviously, he is the best paid player in the world. Uh, I'm not sure anyone's ever even going to top it, to be honest. I mean, if they do, then the world we're living in is just going to be absolutely insane, like it already is. But yeah, let's see. Um, MLS obviously on a break right now while they, they play the MLS All-Star game this week and, and the, the, the pre-season games for the English clubs going out there as well. well no, which, it's, uh, it's time for League's Cup. I'm very excited. League's all, Cup, exactly. All the League MX teams, all the MLS teams, divided into groups, starts towards the back end of this week. So, yeah, really yes. excited. Really excited to actually see a, how that develops. Yeah, that's a, that's obviously a new thing which which they've got opening up. So, yeah, 
It's interesting. I'm excited. Like football's evolving and I'm all for it, mostly apart from the Mitrovic stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, question marks remain. As soon as it affects me personally, I'm not okay with any of it. No, no. These are are the ways in which we roll. I I want to talk just briefly before we move on to our main segment about a few homecomings. Because we've seen some nice transfers recently. And one of the ones that you may have seen taking some headline news was Aaron Ramsey's return to Cardiff which was made even more sweet by the fact that his son signed a contract in the academy on the same day. And the unveiling video and the unveiling pictures had both Aaron Ramsey and his son in it, which I I thought was really, really nice. I thought it was a really nice touch. It was also, you know, this kind of idea of home and family and what all those things mean. And I actually think Cardiff really nailed a lot of the announcement stuff. And and Ramsey's comments since going back have been really nice to see. There's been a couple of others. I thought Ander Guevara, which is one you might not have, have seen, left Real Sociedad, where he's been for a long, long time. He, he joined Real Sociedad's youth setup in 2012, when he was just 15 years old. Um, and he has worked his way through the C team, the B team, finally into the A team, um, the, A team, the first team, uh, where he's made 71 appearances. Last year, he made 31 appearances in the league for Real Sociedad. So it became a relatively key part of the squad that got Champions League football. And he has left to go back to his boyhood club of Alaves. Um, which I, I thought was a really nice touch, you know, just gone back to be the heart of the team that he left at 15 years old. He was born in, in Vitoria Castells, um, which is the official capital of the Basque country, I believe, um, where Alaves are from. And so he, he's gone back there to, to be part of their push to get out of the league, which I thought was a really nice story. But staying in Spain, is anyone as good at homecomings as Hector Bellerin? This is his third in three years. <laughs> he came back to Betis, his father's team and his grandfather's team, who, you know, and, and there was a major thing about it. He won the Copa del Rey. There was lots of joy. Then he went back to Barcelona, where he'd spent time in La Masia. Um, he didn't get much game time, but there was a nice element of, of homecoming to that as well. Didn't kind of work out. Went off on loan to Sporting. And now he's gone back to Betis again. And I'm like, yes, everyone's coming home. <laughs> and the kind of joy... I think of keeping someone who understands the Betico spirit after losing Joaquin, who obviously retired at the end of last season, is a really key point. And I think just bringing Bayerian back in to just nurture that spirit and make sure that everybody's got a handle on it is a really key element. And, and I'm really, really excited. I think it's a lovely move for him. He's got a long contract to 2028. So you'd imagine this is where Hector Bayerian sees out the rest of his football career or the rest of his top level football career at the very least. Um, but yeah, I, I just really liked it. I, I thought it was a really nice touch. And there are some, there's been plenty of negative headlines about Hector Bellerin on here over the years, him winning <laughs> Melon of the Year for foul throws one year, of course. Um, but back in Verde Blanco, I'm just really excited to see him back. It offers genuine competition on that right flank. And I think it's a really smart bit of business for Betis as well as everything else. On, on top of all the other bits, I think it's smart business, makes sense. And it gives that emotional kind of nurturing to a young team coming through. And I just thought it was a really lovely move. The king of the homecomings makes another one. Yeah, fair play to him. I mean, he's bounced back from that Melon of the Year award in style, Hector Bellerin. So absolutely, this man has got thick skin, broad shoulders and loves a homecoming. Lovely story, mate. Absolutely. Right, after the break, we're going to be talking about the most expensive Premier League signings of all time. So don't go anywhere. It's easy to lose sleep when you're worried about your health insurance plan. But when you have a family counting on you to take care of them, having the right coverage is more important than ever. 
Anthem HealthKeepers plans can help. With low to no cost coverage for you and your family. So you never go it alone. That's our Anthem. Click to learn more. Looking for a fun way to win 25 times your money this football and basketball season? Test your skills on Prize Picks, the most exciting way to play daily fantasy sports. Just select two or more players, pick more or less on their projection for a wide variety of stats, and place your entry. It's as easy as that. If you have the skills, you can turn $10 into $250 with just a few taps. Easy gameplay, quick withdrawals, and injury insurance on your picks are what make Prize Picks the number one daily fantasy sports app. Ready to test your skills? Join the Prize Picks community of more than 7 million players who have already signed up. Right now, Prize Picks will match your first deposit up to $100. Just visit prizepicks.com/play100 and use code play100. That's code play100 at prizepicks.com/play100 for a first deposit match up to $100. Prize Picks, daily fantasy sports made easy. Welcome back to Ranks FC. It's time for our main segment. And I'm delighted to just hand the floor over to our transfer guru, Mr. Dean Jones. Yeah, well, I just find us living in an interesting time. Uh, we've already addressed the Saudi Arabia situation at the top of the show briefly, but obviously they've rocked the transfer market with the fact that they've been able to poach all these players uh, from the Premier League, which has never happened before. We are usually the hunters, not the hunted, but that that has changed. Um but their transfer fees themselves haven't actually been that extortionate. Like as we're recording this, uh, Ruben Neves is the, the highest transfer fee, and it's only like 55 million euros, which isn't that out there compared to some of the fees that have been paid in the Premier League. But we've just seen a deal for Declan Rice to go to Arsenal at £105 million, the second highest fee we've ever seen in the Premier League. So it got me thinking about the success rates of players when they make these extortionate moves and how many of them actually work out. And I thought, do you know what? We just need to get stuck into this. Let's address the situation, especially because right now, well, literally as we are talking right now, there are a couple of deals that are trying to get off the ground that would be extortionate, that would be making this list. Moise Caicedo at Brighton being chased by Chelsea He's £100 million rated. Chelsea not getting close to that figure at the moment. They went at the start of the summer with a 60-ish million pound approach. And now they're going in at £70 million. It's a waste of time. Brighton are not entertaining that. So Chelsea risking rattling them as we sit here right now. Let's see how it plays out. But what would that deal be like? If Moise Caicedo did end up going to Chelsea at close to £100 million, would it be a good idea? And of course, there's Harry Kane as well, who's being chased by by Bayern Munich. Tottenham, I'm told, will let Harry Kane go for £120 million. So that would be the most expensive exit from the Premier League that we've seen. And look, that would be the transfer of the summer. I don't know that Bayern Munich could get to that sort of level. They've never gone close to those levels when it comes to making a signing. So it would be huge. But yeah, let's see what we think of the Premier League's biggest transfers so far since it came about. So, Are we talking arrivals and departures or just arrivals? 
I'm just going to do arrivals. So obviously Kane is a bit different because it, it's leaving the Premier League potentially. But there is a chance there. If Man United's takeover went through tomorrow, which it won't, then they could get involved in that and they could have potentially bought Kane for £120 million. So, you know, he's the England captain, he's Tottenham captain, he's, you know, he's got all these rec- goal records. We should We should lead that into this conversation because it puts into context how these other deals have been. Now, I'm going to start it, the, this list specifically with Virgil van Dijk yeah. when he moved to Liverpool in 2018 because that was a deal that Liverpool, it was very high-profile chase and at £75 million, people were like, whoa, this is a huge amount of money. A centre-back from Southampton for £75 million. I'd say it's been one of the most successful transfers we've actually ever seen. What that transfer did for Liverpool Football Club, changing the philosophy, the culture, the feel, the style, it did everything. Virgil van Dijk became an absolute colossus of a man after that transfer. And he did really well to live up to the hype around it too. You know, that was a, that was a long chase. It was a year, basically, of, of headlines and doubt. And uh, he got training on his own before Christmas. It was all, it was yeah. all, a bit all over the place, wasn't it? And he lived up to it all, mate. He's he's undoubtedly lived up to that price tag, hasn't he? So basically, as I go through this list, what I want us to do is get a feel for how many of these transfers were actually worth it, um, and just where the value actually stuck. So at seventy-five million pound, as we look back on it now. 2018, Virgil van Dijk. How are you viewing that transfer? Yeah, I mean, it's it's an amazing, amazing deal, isn't it? And and I think he's 10th, right, in the list of most expensive Premier League incomings, if I'm not mistaken. And I think it's yeah. the only one of the 10 that you can call an unprecedented success from start to finish. It hasn't mm. had any real negativity. He has been sensational from almost the moment he stepped through the door. And completely changed the fortunes, as you say, of Liverpool Football Club. And, and I think that that's, that's all you can ask for from a headline transfer, from one of the ones that grabs the front pages and the back pages. It's These are these transfers, right? The ones over this kind of amount of money, over 75 million is the top 10 in the Premier League. Every single one of these ends up on both front and back pages. And I think that mm. if you are that kind of you know signature transfer, the, the deal that defines a summer, for example, then there has to be something about that, that that grabs the headlines in a very good way and goes, right, yes, this is this is forward thinking. This is smart business and it's worked. And I think he's the only one of this 10. There's one, one more that I think that you can say is a success. But I think this is the only one that you can call an unprecedented success. And part of that is just longevity, right? This, as you say, 2018, it's five years ago now, or it will be five years and and this he's going into his fifth full season at Liverpool, and I think that generally he's barely put a foot wrong in those five seasons. That's that's all you can ask for. Yeah, I mean he's on a par. Seventy five million pound is the same fee that Romelu Lukaku joined Man United for from Everton the previous year, the twenty seventeen. Lukaku made that switch on a five year contract to United, and well, it turned out to be one of the worst deals ever, didn't it? I mean, it it just was the complete opposite to how that that Van Dyke deal turned out to be, and maybe at the time that's why people were doubt fall over that that fee because of what had happened with Lukaku over the over the first year. I mean, it, he just couldn't live up to the price tag at all. Um, so 
I think that that plays a part in that. I mean, I think you would agree that Lukaku was a complete flop. No, I wouldn't. In that, what? I wouldn't agree with that. I think that's a that's a ridiculous statement. Romelu Lukaku scored 28 goals in 66 Premier League appearances for Manchester United. He scored 42 in 96. That's pretty much it's just under one in two. That is not a bad goal record, considering the issues that Manchester United have had up front with their strikers. You look back at that and you go, mm, you know what? That wasn't all that bad. And, and look, yes, obviously there's a bit of hindsight in this. And yes, you have to put the context into it of there were moments where it looked like a disaster. But... I think you look back at those seasons, you know, he and you look back at it and you think, where were Manchester United at that point? I think those goals are incredibly important goals. I don't think it's fair to be like he was an unprecedented flop. I think you look back at his other move, which we'll talk about a bit later, and you can talk about that as an unprecedented flop. But I actually don't think that this one, in hindsight, was quite as bad as people were giving him jip for. His record Ooh, wow. at Manchester United is about the same as it was for Everton. Considering a step up yeah. in quality, I think that that's probably better than people are giving him credit for. Okay, well, I, I'm glad you made an argument there because now I'll, I'll reassess it a little bit and I'll say maybe he was victimised into that into becoming a flop. The transfer is regarded as a flop. Yeah, of course it and is. I, um, and so maybe maybe it's circumstance and the. I guess the narrative that was built around him was unfair on him. Um, obviously, people began to call him lazy, uh, all these sorts of things that people throw at footballers when they don't know what else to say. Um, yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe it's harsh to to qualify Lukaku as a flop, but certainly you can't put him into the same bracket as Van Dijk. No, and no, he's no, not at all. I don't, I don't think this is a success. I don't think you can go and be like, this transfer was a success. I just don't think it's as bad as maybe it's looked back on in hindsight when actually he kind of sort of did okay in an okay Manchester United team. It was just like yeah. one of those, right? Okay, well, let's kick it up a level then and go to Harry Maguire because he joined Man United. You can see where this is heading, by the way. This well, the, next of Man five, United the next five players. are Manchester United <laughs> players, aren't they? Well, including well, Lukaku not, and... Uh, well, well, kind of, yeah. Uh, there's someone else in between. But um, look, you, you, you get to Harry Maguire and 2019, I remember very specifically being with you and Sam in America as this transfer was nearing stages of conclusion. Um, and tweet, I'd got a, I'd got a, a message from someone being in a hotel room in Chicago and tweeting about this, this nearing that, well, being done basically. And I remember at the time thinking like they finally got it done. Like this, this is it. They've, they've, They've got the deal. They've been chasing this so hard and Leicester have really, really pushed them and pushed them for this fee. And whether it was 80 or 85 uh, in the end that United end up paying for Harry Maguire, it's not going to be looked upon with hindsight very well. I actually think that Maguire's been slightly hard done by. I think that if Twitter didn't exist, there would be nothing like the same vision of him that there is in global football right now. And I still think that if Harry Maguire can make the right transfer this summer, that he can restore his reputation in time to get to the Euros at the end of the season and actually be a really important member of the England team. But as an £80 million transfer, let's call it, over the course of the last few years, he's just been stripped of the captaincy at Man United. He's basically fifth choice centre-back now. Luke Shaw has moved ahead of him as a centre-back and he's not a centre-back. 
this isn't quite how it was supposed to go, is it? No, it wasn't. I, I, and look, there are there are things that you can't control with this kind of stuff. I think you know Harry Maguire didn't get didn't ask to become an eighty million pound player, and that price tag was kind of hung over his head from the moment he joined. Right? It, it was it was he has to be an eighty million pound player. He has to be, and he wasn't. But that's because he wasn't an eighty million pound player to begin with, and I, I think that. You know, you look at someone like Van Dyke and, and we had offered, they're very different and they're very different types of players. Now, the other thing is that Harry Maguire has had a very unsettled period since he's joined Manchester United, right? There's been, what, five coaches? Four? Mm. In, in, in that time, they've all wanted different things. They've all wanted different styles, playing out from the back or going long, having high defensive lines, having low defensive lines. Harry Maguire hasn't fitted into quite a lot of that. There's still a very good footballer in there. I think, and I, I agree with you. I think his next move has to be right. I would love to see him go abroad, but I. What's he worth now? Well, Manchester United have said fifty million, but I don't think anyone's going to go anywhere near no, that. So that's the public. That's the public valuation. The private one, mate, is thirty to thirty-five. Yeah, I mean, so they're going to take a they're going to take a basically fifty percent loss on Harry Maguire. Thirty in thirty to thirty-five million pounds. It's an astonishing drop in value. Um, it's sad too. Um, Got to remember, like at the World Cup, Harry Maguire did pretty well. <laughs> like he did well for England. Like it just goes to show with the right mindset, the right setup, Harry Maguire can still be a good player. Yeah, I agree. Let's hope. I hope he turns it around. Do you think it's been a success or a failure? It's been a failure. I think that it's very difficult to argue anything, but at that kind of price tag. But I also think that you know you, there is an element of just you know, level to this. And I've always said that I think, and I could be wrong here and someone may well prove me wrong, but from what I've seen, I think Harry Maguire is a kind of center back that you can be like, will thrive in a team pushing for top six, but probably tends to struggle in a team pushing for a title. And I think that's what mm. we've seen. You know, I, mm. I think that when you are given the opportunity to let him do the things he's good at, he's dominant aerially. He is quite good at carrying the ball out when he's given the opportunity and, and, and allowed to kind of stride into midfield. He's good at being that kind of first on the ball defender and, and, and really attacking it, but in the right situations. And I think there is just a little bit of headlessness in there as well. And, and that's maybe the difference between someone like Van Dyke, who continually remains very, very calm, who knows exactly how to deal with, with pressure situations, and, and someone like Maguire, who's, who's perhaps struggled with that a little bit at Manchester United. But, you know, he's given the captaincy. He was always said to be a very important figure in the dressing room. And there was an element of Manchester United trying to turn things around when Harry Maguire came in. Now, maybe they've got to that point where the, the, you know, the ship has been turned around and the trajectory is now far higher. It's also different to the place where it was when he came in. And I think he's probably made a difference to that turning around process in a positive way. It has to be looked back at, at this kind of money, I think, as a struggle. But... I think that there are intangibles here that maybe we can't quantify in a way that someone who was within that changing room maybe could. Yeah, and look, to be honest, like what he's gone through mentally and the battering he's had from all angles, extremely unfair. And, you know, after what we've um, just seen in the last week with Deli Ali's interview coming out and, the you know, players have all sorts of things going on. And like, I don't know what Harry Maguire's like as a person or anything like that. And to be honest, it's not fair on us to judge. It's not fair on us to judge um, what else is going on. So 
I say well done to Harry Maguire for even standing there um, at the end of last season, continuing to give interviews, continuing to release a statement the other day, even talking about being having the captaincy taken away from him. That is a strong, strong personality. So I, give, I do give him credit for that. Now, let's move up the list because we have got another Man United player next. And it's a recent signing. It's Anthony, mm. who joined United at around £85 million from Ajax. Um Early days, obviously, like I can't say flop. I think it's too soon. But I certainly have an issue with this as an £85 million signing. And you can see the pattern starting to emerge already in the amount of money that United have thrown at things in the last five, six years um, and not got enough out of it. But Anthony, unfortunately, does come under this umbrella at the moment. He can turn it around, of course he can, but it's been a difficult first year and things haven't headed in the right direction. Where would you see Anthony standing right now in terms of being an £85 million asset at Man United? We can talk about it you know, after a season and it's obviously, as you say, very difficult to judge. I actually think that United are better generally, kind of across the board when Anthony is on the pitch. And that I think is probably something that, goes a little bit under the radar sometimes you know mm. he's he's one of those players where people look at it and go okay not everything's been perfect he's he's a lot of a lot of money and he hasn't been you know I think one of United's most influential players but I definitely think that he is a player that United are better when he's on the pitch and they're allowed to play the way that Ten Hag is trying to play and so mm. when all of that is put in in context I'm still okay on this one. The other thing about it is that, you know, when you're looking at a player like this and you're looking at managers who come in, we've talked about this a little bit in terms of managers who come in and they bring in players who already know the system. They're able to to come in and they, you know, they bring in a player who's kind of crucial to the way that they play. Jorginho and Sarri at Chelsea is the obvious example of this. But when Ten Hag came in last summer, he brought in Sandra Martinez and he brought in Anthony in order to be able to try and transmute his style of play from Ajax. Obviously, it's going to change somewhat. You know, things don't completely and utterly map. But transmute a little bit of that style of play onto Manchester United to be able to try and play the way that he wanted. And I think that I think that Anthony has been a big part of that. And, and whilst his output hasn't been great, he has had a decent season, I think. Personally, you know, he, he scored some big goals. He's made some impacts. He scored goals in important moments. And I think that generally he will continue to improve. So I, I'm, I think when you talk about some of these Manchester United signings, they're like, oh God, that one was dreadful. This one, I genuinely think he came in late. He was a player that was able to, to step in and try and make things happen. He's part of a side that's in transition uh, on an upward trajectory, but still in transition. And I think that we'll see more and more of the best of him as as this develops. So I, I think I, will, I remain relatively neutral, but with a slightly positive spin on this one so far, to be honest. Okay, well, let's make a direct comparison to a player that arrived in the Premier League at exactly the same time as he did ahead of last season. Actually, Man United might have dodged a bullet on this one. Darwin Nunes arrived also for £85 million from Benfica. United were linked with him heavily. Liverpool ended up signing him. Same fee, one season in the Premier League. Darwin Nunes had one of the worst starts I've ever seen to a Premier League career 
He obviously was uh, a high-profile signing. He was right in the spotlight and he was missing glaring chances. So straight away, he's on the back foot. I was extremely harsh on Darwin Nunez. I mean, I was ready to tarnish him as one of the worst Premier League signings I'd ever seen. Judged on his misses, judged on his bad decision-making, his bad passes, his balls into the box that were misguided. And I just didn't like it at all. But I will give Darwin Nunez credit for the way that he continued to cause problems for defenders, the way that he had to play in different positions, the way that Liverpool's season changed based on personnel, based on circumstances. I do feel like he was part of the reason that Liverpool didn't do very well last season, but that by the end, he did look a bit of a better fit for the team and he improved with the system. So in direct comparison to Anthony, first of all, have Liverpool got a better or a worse deal, do you think, if it's both price points are £85 million? I think at the moment they feel relatively similar, right? I, I could yeah. I could echo quite a lot of what I've just said about Anthony to Darwin. I think also, you know, it's easy to forget that in his first couple of games, there were real signs of, of, of life. He, you know, had a, a couple of, I think he won the penalty in the Community Shield, didn't he, that Salah scored from. He scored and got an assist on his debut at Craven Cottage. In the he Premier wasn't League. good in that game, mate. He, he wasn't, wasn't good, good in that though. game. You're right. But he scored and he got an assist. And there are there are moments where you want your number nine to not be a, allowed to be involved in the game and still It was like up. sticking a cone in the box and just causing a few problems because people were tripping over him. It, co- it, it was a cone that worked. He got Liverpool <laughs> a point, right? Uh, and, and when you kind of put all this together, yes, it's not been the, the season I think that he would have wanted. It's not the season that... Liverpool fans would have wanted. And I imagine that most of their fans would probably say that it was mixed. But didn't he win Liverpool Player of the Year twice? In, you know, player, sorry, Player of the Month twice across the course of the year. Um, he, he scored twice in the game against Manchester United in that 7 0 win. He, you know, th- there were real flashes of brilliance from him. He's just been given the number nine shirt. So I think that's a sense of we do believe in you. And yes, there are flaws in his game. But he's, he feels very much like someone who is a work in progress, you know, someone who's, who's still continuing to develop. But I think that there are severe flashes of a serious, serious player in here. And he's also adapting to a team that plays very differently to the one that he played in in Benfica. It's a, you know, that is the, is the big difference, I think, between him and Anthony. Anthony's come in to a stylistic position where I'm imagining Ten Hag is asking him to do very similar things to what he did at Ajax. Whereas Darwin is coming and is being asked to do very different things to what he was doing at Benfica. And I think it's probably worth considering. But yeah, mixed start, I would give it, I would have neutral hanging on it. And I think that both of these players, I'll put them in very similar brackets, kick on and potentially achieve quite a lot more in their time at both Liverpool and Manchester United respectively. Okay, very, very diplomatic and kind of you. Well done. I'm um, I'm an eternal optimist and I really like Darwin. I like what he brings to the table. I like his raw attributes. Yes, there are moments where you're like, oh my God, he's done it again. He's fallen over the ball. But there are also elements that you go, there are very few players in the world that could do that. And I think that that's a pretty cool place to be. Yeah, okay, that's that's fair enough, mate. Um, let's move on to a player that arrived in the Premier League this year he cost 88 million pounds he was supposed to join arsenal he ended up 
very surprisingly in the end, at Chelsea. Um, not mm. really surprisingly, because that's just what Chelsea did at that period. They just signed everyone. £88 million. Mikhailo Mudrik arrived at Stamford Bridge. This is a lot, a lot of money for um, a player who is 22, um, come from Shakhtar, got 15 Premier League appearances behind him last season. He did not manage to score a goal. He did get two assists. There were flashes of brilliance. There was lots of average performances. (laughs) And this seems to me a signing that they never needed to make, first and foremost. And secondly, not convinced it's the right club for Mikhailo Mudrik. But fresh start this season at Chelsea. Uh, New manager, new philosophy. All the old players are gone. They've got a completely new setup coming in. This is a fresh start for him. At the moment, I mean, you people would just look at this and they would, they'd brand this a flop. Like they would say, this is a waste of money. This is a silly transfer, a flop transfer. But obviously we can't gauge that yet. Like the guy signed a 27-year contract or something ridiculous. Like he's got a long time left at Chelsea if he was to see it through. But Mudrick, do you have faith in him turning this around? Do you think it's going to be a good season for him? I have faith in him turning it around at some point in his career. Um, I really hope for his sake that that is this year. There, there are real signs of what he can do and what his his best strengths are, cutting in off that left flank and, and, and becoming you know, a player that, that likes to contribute in the box that suggests that he's really, really quite quite talented. And I think his performances at the under-21 Euros, we talked about it a little bit when, when Seb was on here, but his performances at the under-21 Euros I was impressed with. He he didn't play in the group stage. He was left on the bench. And there were a lot of people going, why is he on the bench? You know, is he not good enough to get into Ukraine's under-21 squad? But I think it was a case of he's a senior international. They were trying to give players minutes who'd, who'd help get them to that point. But his display against France um, in, in the game that Ukraine won 3-0, I, I thought was was pretty sensational. And that wasn't, you know, an average France team. This is a side where France's back four are out there playing senior minutes for top sides in Europe on a regular basis. So there's nothing to be, you know, taken from being like, oh, I was only the under 21s. It was a really, really impressive performance and a kind of reminder of the dynamism that he does possess. So I think anyone branding it a flop is probably a little bit premature. That's not to say that he has been good because there hasn't been much to cling on to, I don't think, in in his kind of 15 or so appearances for Chelsea so far. They, they haven't been anything to write home about. And when you get this kind of fee on you, these are the things that happen. But he's still such a young footballer, you know, he, and, and I think it's easy to forget that he wasn't even starting week in, week out for Shakhtar, you know, when he left. And and I think that's important. You know, him and Mana Solomon were trading minutes. Obviously, Solomon's now at Spurs. Mudrick's at Chelsea. They're two very, very good footballers. But, you know, he he was never kind of supposed to be, oh my God, he's going to explode into life here. He's a really, really talented footballer. De Zerbi's talked about it before, right? He, he's talked about the fact that when he came through at Shakhtar, I think I remember called Deserbi being like, if I can't get him to the top, I've failed as a manager, which suggests the kind of talent that he possesses. I think in a Pochettino team, he should be able to unleash a lot more of what he's capable of. And it's important to remember that pretty much everyone at Chelsea was bad last season, right? There were very few bright spots across the course of the season. They just felt like they were out of shape in every single possible category. And generally... 
when you look at that, I think that there's so much space for him to improve that things can only go upwards from here. He's on a, as you say, an eight year contract. He's got a lot, a lot of time here to make this work. And I think that, I think that he will. I don't know if that's this season or it comes a little bit later, but I think that there's definitely a player in there who who will be unlocked at some point because the attributes he has, his ball carrying ability, his ball striking ability suggests that at some point everything is just going to come good. Yeah, okay, that's fair enough. Let's uh, flip this up. For what it's worth, I mean, look, Mudrick's got a tough season ahead of him. If Raheem Sterling has a bounce-back season... Yeah. And actually plays how he can on the left wing. Mudrick's not getting a look in. That's that's the problem because Chelsea don't even have Europe next season for Mudrick to be getting game time in. So he's going to be playing Carabao Cup. That is what I'm not sure about. So it'll be interesting to see how Pochettino manages that if Raz produces the goods ahead of him. Yeah. One million up from Mudrick is a guy who joined Man United, rejoined, I should say, from Juventus in 2016. This is the furthest we go back in this list. So Paul Pogba went to Man United for £89 million. Similar to, I guess, Maguire in that he was absolutely tarnished. His reputation was left in the mud by how all the slander that he got. Um, A lot of it was unfair. I saw Pogba many times in the flesh for Man United. And I remember taking my dad to a United game one time. Old Trafford, and my dad, not a fan of Pogba at all, but is a Man United fan. And he slate him at every opportunity. I say, okay, right, now you're here, just watch Pogba, spend the next 15 minutes watching Pogba. And he came away from the game with just a completely different level of respect for him and how good a technician he was of a ball. Like what Pogba can do, very few people can do in the game. Obviously, though, this move didn't work out. When he got to his final season with Man United in 21-22, the first game, Man United played against Leeds. They won 5-1. You get four assists or something. Got four assists. (laughs) And you were like, here he is, Pogback. We're on. We're on. Well, it it didn't happen for him. It didn't happen for him. Uh, He got one goal all season in a 1-1 draw with Burnley. And when it came to June 2022, Pogba was on his way out and of course he didn't know what else to do so he just went back to his old club because that's what Pogba tends to do when he's not sure what to do at that stage the yo-yo hasn't gone well. yeah the yo-yo hasn't gone well at Juve either uh, but nevertheless Pogba an 89 million pound flop you cannot argue no I, I think that there's very little to discuss in terms of this transfer being a success right um, there is a similar argument I think to be had in the same way that I would have defended Maguire in the United were a bit all over the place for this period, right? And he played 154 games in six seasons, which isn't bad. You know, that's that's a lot. And considering, you know, you look at what things are going on at Juventus and the injury problems that he's had, I think that his, his consistency in that time was probably, in terms of actually being on the pitch, is something to, to look at. I also think that the expectations laid on him to become the main man were probably at odds with actually the setup of a team that wasn't built to kind of thrive on on what Paul Pogba was doing but yeah it's hard to quantify as a success of course it is like that's a a mad thing to do but when you kind of look at how Juventus built around him in that team 
and built him, you know, as the the key man in terms of creation and and, and driving them forward. He kind of comp- competed with those spots with, with Bruno Fernandes, which is probably, you know, we see Bruno probably going to be Manchester United captain now. He's been probably their most influential player for the last couple of seasons. That's, you know, a, a top player in the world. We're talking about Bruno as one of the best attacking midfielders in the world. I don't think United were set up to get the best out of Pogba. And that's a that's a shame, I think. It is is my kind of that's my overwhelming feeling towards this move. It's a shame that it just didn't work out and that no one could work it out and that United were in such a turmoil spot when Pogba came back in. Because I don't think anyone in the world is ever going to deny the talent that Paul Pogba has. Um, but you have to build around him. You have to make things work around him. And United failed to do that. And then Pogba failed to step up to the breach as well. And I think that there were failures on both sides of this. There's not much to you know, kick back on in terms of what bits were successful. He won United's first continental trophy in, what, a decade when they won the Europa League? So that's something. Um, mm. I think that there were some positive moments, which is a Mourinho before it all went wrong. But Sadly, I think we, we we got to a point where it just felt untenable. And at that point, you know, it it just felt like the only the only answer was was for Pogba to move on. I don't think it's any surprise that his best year came in that 2018-19 season where Jose started the, the season and ultimately it got to the end of the season and you look at who was who was there and who was about, and it was it, it was Ole Gunnar Solskjaer in charge. But you look at that side and you think, who were the, the players meant to step up in that team? Pogba was the kind of key man, right? Lukaku was there, Pogba was there, and you you look at the, the situation between them and how other players. There. I think I think Pogba was United's top scorer, if I'm not mistaken, in, in that campaign because it felt like for the first time things revolved around him. And then United improved; they added players. And he was no longer that kind of key element. And it fell away. That, I think, will be the legacy of of, of that transfer. Mm, Fair enough. Sorry, Pogs. Um, Mate, here's one. Romelo Lukaku is at number four in the the only player that values twice, right? All-time Premier League transfers. Romelo Lukaku returned to Chelsea. He went back. And he was hopeful. He was full of hope when he went on August 2021. £97.5 million from Inter Milan. It meant that at the time he was the most expensive player of all time and actually meant that his accumulative transfer fees reached almost £300 million. Um, It started well for him. You know, his, his, uh, his second spell with Chelsea, he got a goal on his debut. And you were thinking, okay, this could go well. But quickly, things started to unravel for Lukaku. And I'm sure you all remember the interview that he gave in the December with Sky Italia when he reported that he was not happy with the Chelsea situation. By that point, to be fair, Chelsea were playing a style of football that did not accommodate Lukaku. He didn't fit. He said that the coach, Tuchel, had chosen to play with another system, uh, which was not fitting of him, was not the kind of way that he'd been scoring goals at Inter Milan. Um, of course, he did issue an apology. He would go on, uh, play a few more games for Chelsea, but never actually made any impact. He finished the season with eight goals, not a great return on £97 million. And he's just, I think he's widely regarded as one of the worst signings we've ever seen 
in Premier League history at that money. He left Chelsea uh, that summer. He went to Inter Milan on loan. Uh, ironically, as we're recording this, he's actually returning to Chelsea from that loan today uh, to to see if there's any how they can resolve his problem there because he didn't expect to be going back at all. He thought he'd be making a permanent move to Inter. That hasn't happened. A few clubs now looking at the Lukaku situation, but he's found himself in a bit of a mess ahead of the new season. Poor old Rom. Um, mate, what a what a player. I like Lukaku. He's such a good player, such a good goal scorer. And at this stage of his career, I mean, Lukaku, let me just double check his age before. Yeah, he is 30. Yeah. He's 30 years old. He's still got a few years in him, undoubtedly. But I mean, he's done in the Premier League, isn't he? We're not going to be seeing him again. I don't think so, no. Um, I, I think that, 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 that race has been run. And I think that he's just happier in Italy and fair play to him because it seems like a nicer place to be. But yeah, I mean, again, it was just one that was filled with disappointment. It started okay. You remember that goal against Arsenal and you're like, oh, okay, he's here. This is Chelsea under Tuchel, reigning Champions League winners. And it felt like everything was just on the up. And then it just fell away. And when you look at the way that Tuchel set up and the fact that, you know, you look back at this, it would with hindsight and everyone has 2020 vision in hindsight, but you look at how Tuchel wanted to operate without an out and out striker with someone who was able to be fluid in those positions. That was never going to be Lukaku, was it? And I think, you know, did he, did he end up with Ch- as Chelsea's top scorer in that comp- in that season? I think he did. Um, so, you know, it wasn't all doom and gloom. I think he got 15 in all competitions. So it wasn't absolutely dreadful, but the fact that he was just, clearly not cut out to play in this Tuchel system. The fact that Tuchel didn't have no interest in accommodating to make room for Romelu Lukaku, it all just felt wrong. And sadly, that's how it that's how it went, right? It's the it's the kind of issues that sometimes plague us is when things don't fit, round pegs, square holes, etc, etc, etc. Um but yeah, a shame, but I can't believe that anybody is going to sit here and tell you that that was a success because it wasn't. And ultimately, Chelsea are still trying to to move Lukaku off the books. Um, they're going to take a massive loss on him. And we talked about the loss on Harry Maguire as a major negative against his name earlier on in this. Sadly, that's just the kind of way of it. And 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 this one has to go down as, as a, sadly, a, a failed transfer. But yeah, it, it felt so much like round pegs. I keep saying this: square pegs in round holes. I don't know why I can't say that phrase. Um, but that this Can't one, a new phrase. This one felt like that. I think to the highest extent with Tuchel and Lukaku. And for ages, I've been like, why don't you know when Lewandowski lost by, uh, left Bayern Munich? I was like, they should just sign Lukaku. It'd be great. You go up front, score a load of goals for Bayern Munich, and then Tuchel's taking over for Bayern Munich. I'm like, nope, don't send Lukaku there, please, please, whatever you do. Do not reunite Thomas Tuchel and Romelu Lukaku. It is not a <laughs> not a marriage made in heaven, that one. So the trend here basically is that all of these players we've talked about so far, many of them are 
either already regarded flops or have the potential to become flop signings at these ridiculous fees. Let's just throw a few others that I haven't mentioned so far into the mix that didn't quite make the list that I've, I've listed up so far. Jaden Sancho yeah. at around £73 million is a flop. Nicola Pepe at £72 million is a flop. Kepper was £71 million. Like, he's not a complete flop as a footballer, but at £71 million, he certainly is. He also just uh, wasn't... Was, like, I think there's so much of this where it felt like... Sancho, and I think this is where I struggle. It felt like Sancho was worth what Manchester United paid for him, right? At the time of the transfer and the, the market as it was, Sancho felt like that was a reasonable fee. Now, again, we really hope that turns around. Um, but so far, I think it's not been a success in, in terms of yeah. that, move, that move. But you look at some of these others, Pepe was never worth what, what Arsenal paid for him. And it was, it was ludicrous that they went to that kind of fee. Kepa was never worth what Chelsea paid for him. They just lost... Thibaut Courtois, and they knew they needed a keeper, and Athletic Club are notorious for being like, you pay the release clause or you do not get our players. That's as simple as that. And Chelsea made a huge mistake in that regard, paying that kind of money. If Kepa had come in at the sort of 35, 40 million mark, which is probably what he was worth as a young goalkeeper, he was 23 at the time, then I think that we'd all be looking at this going, okay, yeah, in a bit of a tough start to life, but he's actually come round and, you know, at 30, 40 million, you'd be looking at that and going, fine, reasonable signing. Pepe was different in that he had one absolutely blistering season and then suddenly Arsenal were throwing ludicrous money around for for bizarre, no mm. reason. And, you know, you'll remember that transfer, especially in that it felt like there was absolutely no way that Arsenal could pay the money and they somehow managed to loan, beg and borrow to be able Clarno, to get it through. Cool, yeah, well, exactly. So it, and the fact that they had to do that, I think, probably set them back two years. So that was that was a dreadful one. But... I think where Sancho is different to the others is that he felt like he was worth the fee, whereas the other two felt like they were majorly overpriced. Okay. So there is a way to buck this trend. You spend a hundred million pounds or more. Jack Grealish was a hundred million pounds. And I think he might be worth it. Yeah. Declan Rice goes in at two, a hundred and five million pounds. We don't know yet. He hasn't played as we record in this but he might be worth it. And at one, the most expensive player we've seen in the Premier League was the arrival of Enzo Fernandez in January for £106 million. And I think that transfer is going to be worth it. So when we're talking about Caicedo's value and Kane's value, and I should probably throw Gvardiol into this conversation because the good chance that he does arrive at, at Man City over the course of the summer and it'll be up towards £100 million. They can work. It can work. Jack Grealish, I think, has had a, a tricky situation to understand the philosophy, fit in and shine and thrive to the levels a £100 million footballer should. But he's an attacker. He's got. He's literally judged on numbers and output, right? Mm. Rice and Enzo are different because they're midfielders who aren't don't have such tangible moments that you judge them upon. And this is what I find really interesting because they're the heartbeat of a team. There's not many players in this list so far that I've talked about that are the heartbeat. Maybe Pogba, maybe Pogba, but he's still looked at as more of an attack-minded player a lot of the time by people. But, you know, 70%, 75% of the, of the list here that I've talked about were attackers. So it's very interesting to me that the top two are central midfielders. Hmm. 
it's a change, isn't it? It's a bit of a shift in, in in balance and also what the game looks like. And I think that that will continue to shift and evolve as as we go down the years. But I think it's important to remember that on Grealish, if we'd been having this conversation last year, there'd be people screaming at us, he's a flop. And now, yep, you know, absolutely. you look at this and, and actually he said, he came out, didn't he? He said it was, it was really tricky. And Pep came out and said that I'm really pleased with him. But there was a sense that it felt like he was he was put under the spotlight and and that there was that over heavy spotlight on him because he was the most expensive English player at the time of all time. Um, you know, I think I remember De Bruyne coming out. I think Gundogan came out. There were a few players that came out and were like, it's just ridiculous that the media scrutiny on Grealish. I mean, this year he's come out, he's been an absolutely key part of Manchester City winning the treble, winning the Champions League for the first time. He was a really, really important part of all of it. And he was, you know, a pretty much a lock for Pep Guardiola in a team stacked with stars. I think that's a really important thing. You know, he played 50 games for City this season across all competitions. And yes, he might have only scored five goals. But what he did was provided an outball. He was the key man in his role. He was so crucial to a lot of Haaland's output. And when you look at all of those things together, you know, one more year can make all the difference. And we're seeing Jack Grealish in a form that maybe we've never seen him before. I'd argue it's not as exciting as his Aston Villa free form football. It's not as it's not as fun, but it's clearly a better player for it. And, and therefore, when you're looking at him and thinking, wow, this is a guy who's just been an absolutely cornerstone part of Man City winning a treble. And a year ago, people would have been like, this transfer was a complete flop. It was a disaster. And it's just easy to you know, forget how quickly things can turn around. And that's why I think when you look at someone like Darwin, you look at someone like Anthony, you look at Mudrick or Enzo who came in in January, and people are absolutely lambasting things after six months a year. You just got to sometimes give things a bit of time to settle down, especially... You know, it took Grealish a year to settle in in a club of City, which are so settled and feel like they're right in the heart of doing things the right way in terms of on the pitch. You know, they they know exactly what their roles are. There has been a manager in place for a long period of time. They have not in a transition period or they're as stable as you can be with Pep mixing things up every so often. As compared to somewhere like Chelsea, where things are all over the place, Uh, Manchester United, where Eric Ten Hag has come in and tried to change things up. And Liverpool, who were having their worst season in recent history. All of those things need to be taken into account. And I think it's easy to, to brand players badly after one year or six months of things going going in not the way that they maybe hoped that they would start. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, to move it just on and we'll conclude this, I did do a poll on, on Declan Rice, actually, uh, at the weekend when his deal to Arsenal was tied up. I just said, how do we actually think we will one day look back at the £105 million Declan Rice transfer? Flop got 15% of the vote. Bit of a disappointment got 42%. And 43%, the winner, was massive success. So he's just edged it. Um, But but it's important to remember that over 50% of people said it would go badly. (laughs) That's true. That is true, actually. That's... Yeah, that's it. I hadn't looked at it in the, in those eyes. Declan Rice, absolute flop, waste of money. Don't go over the hundred million pound price point. I think I think Rice will be just fine. Um, yeah, I think he's um, be absolutely fine. At Arsenal. And Enzo, look, just to, to on Enzo, it's his career 
at Chelsea is probably going to be defined on who they can actually get to play alongside him. So again, it comes back to this Caicedo debate. Uh, and if it's to be him, if it's not to be him, they've got to find someone who can actually play alongside him, but also allow him to do what he does best. Um, otherwise, you know, the the outlay isn't worth it. Mm. You know, it's all very well getting that asset through the door, but you then have to surround them with players that allow them to shine. And at the moment, Chelsea building a great under-21 team, but this isn't a team that's ready to go and do the business in the Premier League with Enzo Fernandes at the heart of it. What did Alan Hansen once say? You don't win anything with kids. Yeah. Chelsea, Premier League champions, 2023-24. Right. With that, I think it's probably time for us to move on to our final segment, where you'll be delighted to hear that it's time for a return of Hot Takes. We'll see you in a minute. Welcome back to Ranks FC, where it's time for Hot Takes. Dean, are you excited? I'm very excited, yeah. I don't have no idea today what we've got lined up, so hit me with it. Okay, let's start with Zach. What's going on, Jack? Grandpa Dean, Ghost of Sam Ty, Rank Squad. Uh, I'm Zach from New York in the USA. I'm a City fan. And my hot take is that offsides needs to be gone rid of, or at least the way it currently is. So, from my understanding, offsides is really to prevent cherry picking. And lately, we've seen, especially with VAR, so the closest of margins ruling out big goals, goals in huge moments, particularly what grinds my gears with this rule is when City played Spurs in the Champions League quarterfinals and lost after, I think, Aguero assisted Sterling at the very end, but Aguero was deemed just barely offside from VAR. And a beautiful goal ruled out in what would have been a great moment just to set up eventually one of the worst Champions League finals that I've ever seen. And so I have a couple ideas for this. One could be you widen the offside range of each player so that it's not just the furthest point back on their body, but if any bit of two players overlap, say the attacker and the last defender, then the attacker would be onside. Or you take a page out of the NHL and ice hockey's book and you have sort of a standard line across the field you can make it anywhere from like the attacking third maybe the 18 yard line where once the ball is past that line no player can be offside no matter what and so I just think it would lead to a lot more exciting finishes a lot less goals ruled out for a shoelace being offside and just overall teams and players feeling less hard done by it um, love the pod. Um, shout out the Discord. I'm not very active in there, but there's always some some great banter, some people, you know. And uh, appreciate it. <laughs> nice one, Zach. Yeah, everyone, go and get on Patreon now, by the way, and get in that Discord. We'd really appreciate you over there. Um, look, I'm a, I was a striker, right? I was a striker, and I hate the new offside rule, and I'd hate to be playing with it included in the rules. Um, I have always been of the view that there should be daylight. So kind of what you're saying about the bodies, like if they cross over and stuff, like I've always thought there should be some daylight between the players in order for it to be 
uh, deemed offside. Um, not sure about this thing about it being a line on the pitch. No, uh, I, I'm encur- not sure we can. Does that use- encourage goal hanging or discourage? I'm goal not hanging? sure we can use the NHL rules. Um, I, I'm, <laughs> I, I, that bit, I, I, agree, I disagree with you on Zach. But the, uh, look, what was Zach suggesting with the that first rule change though is pretty much what Arsene Wenger suggested, right? Which is being trialed in the Netherlands, Sweden, and Italy. I believe. I'm not sure if it's this year or next year. Um, but there, there is this rule going to be put in place where it's actually any part of the striker that they can score a goal with. So, like the whole their body and and basically their, anything but the arm, and then the, arm. the they can they will be onside. But I do think that maybe it just does it not just shift the issue of the rule. So suddenly, instead of looking at the front foot being in line, you're actually now just looking at oh, is his back foot trailing enough to catch the the leg of the defender is it just not going to change where the rule is where the line is i think it will mm. em- encourage attacking football which i think is a good thing and it allows strikers to imagine how many goals pippo and zaghi would have scored with this rule in place yeah. right but there is a sense of it that i think you're kind of just shifting the onus on where the line is drawn rather than actually shifting the issue of is this a line or not um and and that bit's quite hard to to judge I think. I'd, I'd take offside out of the equation just completely. I like Zach's use of the word cherry picking instead of goal hanging. That's that's. <laughs> I've never heard that before. So that was that was something yeah. I've, I've learned today. But um, yeah, no, I, I think it's going to be really interesting to see the results of this trial. Zach's going to get his way. He's going to be watching a lot of Serie A and the Al Svenskan and the Eredivisie this year, I imagine, to see how his rule works in real practice. But yeah, I, I think that it's it's going to be interesting. I'm not 100 percent sure it's going to work, but. I'm I'm definitely willing to give it a try. So uh, I agree with Zach in, in that regard. Can we make the game more offensive, more attacking? Maybe. And maybe those things will allow nippy strikers to to start to get those runs in behind going again. But it is also an art, Dean. You know, that is a that is a point. It's an art to be able to disguise your run and, and make sure you can drag a defender with you and get ahead of them. That's something that defenders... And we might end up seeing further low blocks, etc. Because defenders like, I can't risk the high line anymore because it's too hard to keep players offside. Mm, we'll see. We'll see. I mean, the problem is they're changing this rule every year, so it's kind of ruining the game. That's part of the problem too. Mm. Okay. Let's crack on. All right, let's see what Cameron has to say. This is Cameron from Nottingham. Also a fellow Fulham fan, so big up. So my hot take for the podcast is that net spend is a pointless statistic when trying to compare the transfers of different teams because it's always used in terms of how much a club buys when really it tells more about how a club sells their players. So looking at Arsenal and Man United, they have not sold any of their players for any worthy money in the past five years. So looking at that net spend does not matter at all because they can't sell players properly. Same for Liverpool to a certain extent. When you look at clubs like Man City and Chelsea, they actually sell their players for pretty decent amounts and get money for them, e.g. Fernand Torres. I cannot think of a single example of Arsenal or Man United selling a single one of their players for profit, usually them going out for cheaper fees or going out on literal free prices. So the net spend of transfers is kind of inflated saying that these two clubs spend more when actually they spend similar amounts to other clubs. But the reality is they just can't sell their players well enough, which is indicative of a different problem. So yeah, my hot take is that net spend doesn't show how well how clubs buy, but shows how badly clubs sell. 
I like that Cameron recorded that whilst also on a car heist. Um, I was going to say, like, the first guy sounded like he was in a refrigerator the whole time. The second guy sounds like he's standing on a freeway, like... <laughs> free love on um, the free love highway. It's yeah, it's just where people thing. are listening to the pod, I guess, and they just start recording. Um, yeah, look, Man United are terrible at selling players. Absolutely terrible at getting good value for money. You're seeing that right now. They're trying to offload players to bulk up their transfer kitty. And they're like, does anyone want Fred or McTominay for like 20 million? Alanga, 15 to 20 million. Uh, who else? Maguire will take, he's going half price. It's like a car boot sale. It's absolutely ludicrous. And you look over um, at what some other clubs do, like Chelsea, to be fair, have had a, a great window. He obviously helped out by Saudi Arabia massively. Uh, but even though they sold players for not amazing fees, they've still managed oh, yeah, to but get they've about 250 million in the bank this summer. That's more than they've ever sold any players for before across the course of a season. Yeah, and Man City obviously do pretty well uh, 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 getting players out. Chelsea's new thing as well, obviously being resale values and stuff. So they're looking at becoming a major part of the thing. But he's right; like net spend is is largely nonsense when you look at those teams. And again, Arsenal like Nicola Pepe, seventy two million pounds. Like, what is he worth now? Uh, there's been some massive mismanagement across the game, especially in the Premier League at times. And, and those two clubs have, uh, yeah, certainly highlighted that. Do you think this is endemic? Like, there is an element, I think, where City make a lot of their money from players coming through the EDS and then going out to clubs who w- are willing to pay a good fee on them. Let's look at Southampton, for example, just obviously bought Shea Charles after buying Lavia last year. Um, and they were like, well, Lavi has basically doubled his value in the past year and they're looking at doubling the fee that they paid for him. City have got a big fee for Lavia because he's come from a homegrown perspective and yet that kind of continues the cycle. Whereas, you know, United haven't been in a great place for a couple of years and therefore trying to sell players on who have undoubtedly come in and not really done particularly well is actually a far harder task than selling like a young player who's come in and, and you're going, well, we know we're going to get value for him because the city system is is so good down there. And I think what you're seeing, mm. you know, maybe at Chelsea now is also, they'll be like, well, Cobham allows us a place to develop talent that maybe might not make the first team, but also can make money selling lower down the pyramid. That's, that's an important yeah. skill. And actually, you know, when United were dominant, there wasn't really anyone buying their players because they were top of the food chain. City aren't yeah. out here selling Kevin De Bruyne for £150 million because top clubs don't really do that. That's not really how it works. But they are able to sell their youngsters for good fees because teams know that the chances are they're going to be able to upscale that fee when they sell them on. And that's maybe the difference between the two Manchester clubs at the very least. Yeah, I mean, that's true. Obviously, City being uh, tested a little bit right now because they're, they're offloading uh, players that perhaps they, they wouldn't have expected to uh, offload. But they, they do sell players, you know, like uh, you think back, like Raheem Sterling, uh, Gabby Jesus, Zinchenko, all went for, for fees last year. Um, you know, Sterling and Jesus around 50 million. Zinchenko was around 30-ish million, I think, in the end. This year, you've got, uh, obviously, Gundogan's left, but then you've You've got a few right now, Bernardo, uh, Mares, um, Laporte. There's a few that that could still go right. Kyle Walker. So but they don't feel City... like. I think the difference is that these players are kind of fringe is a stretch, and maybe Bernardo is the exception really here. But they feel like parts of the team that City can go and replace, and I think that maybe that's the 
the difference. You know, United are selling players who they don't think are good enough. City are playing players who come in and out of their team and who are clearly there, but want, you know, first team minutes all the time. That's the difference, right? Jesus, Zinchenko, neither of them were, oh my God, they start every single week for City and they have to play. And if they don't play, then the team's going to fall apart. They're not the kind of core in that regard. Mm. And that's something yeah. that City have an advantage on in everywhere else because the depth is so strong. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. All right. Last one. And I know you'll like this one. This one's from Faisal and it has been brewing for a few weeks. We've been waiting for this one to come in, but it's finally oh, okay. arrived. Yo, what's going on, guys? A shout out to my man, Jack Collins, a.k.a. Jack the Ripper of the Zipper. Uh, and of course, Sam Tai, Dean Jones. You guys are doing a great job as always. Been following for a few years. Love what you guys do. My hot take is Paul Scholes is better than Zinedine Zidane. What do you guys think? I'm going to have to refer to you on this because it's... Like, what, the Ripper of the Zipper? Well, yeah, that, you want to ask me about I don't know that? what that is, but um, it's, <laughs> I'll run with it. Any nickname... It doesn't sound it. great, to be honest. No, mate. it just sounds like I've put on a, a lot more kilos than I was really hoping to. Um, but I think that I probably didn't witness Scholes and Zidane in their prime in a way that perhaps you did. Yeah, but also at the time, I was watching Skulls way more than I was watching Zidane. I mean, if you think of, of when Zidane was in his pomp, like he left Real Madrid or he finished at Real Madrid in 2006. Um, and if in 2006, you could watch nowhere near the amount of Real Madrid games from the UK as you could do now where you could see every single match. Um, and same, obviously, Juve was there for like five years at the end of the 90s into 2000s. And all I would see of Zidane was the odd Champions League game, if they were like playing against Man United, or a World Cup or a Euros. So it is very difficult for me to make the comparison, particularly with Paul Scholes, because there was a spell in the 90s where I was seeing in the flesh like Paul Scholes all the time. Like I was going to United games regularly and... And even like carrying on as a reporter, like I was, I reported on Skulls loads of times. I saw loads of Paul Skulls. He's an unbelievable footballer. At the time, there's no doubt that Zidane, like, was head and shoulders regarded above Paul Skulls. Paul Skulls is a player that, with every year that passes, he's remembered more fondly. Mm. And I think maybe it's also because Man United been <laughs> pretty rubbish since he left, and like. That things went so badly without Skulls that they had to bring him back for a bit. Like that that's literally how much Money United have missed Paul Skulls. And there's times now where I'm still like, Do you know what? Paul Skulls should probably still be out there. Like he might be fifty or whatever, but he he probably needs to be back out on the pitch. He was that good. But Zidane is one of the greatest players to ever play the game. Like quite literally. Like because he had a poise and an elegance and a, oh mate, just some of the goals and some of the touches of this guy Zidane was better Zidane is be- was better than Paul Scholes but I take the argument I do because Scholes had uh, it's different Scholes didn't want fame Scholes didn't want any adoration he just wanted to play football and anytime you see a Paul Scholes interview now he even like he's still quite shy he's got very blunt views on stuff and like he'll make headlines all the time because he's like He'll just make. He'll just, just tell says you what, what he thinks. thinks. He just says what he says. What he thinks. He doesn't care. He, like he just tell you what he's seen. But he's just a low profile guy. It was just extremely good at football, and it just came nat- so naturally to him. 
if you look back, I think it was against Bradford City once that Paul Scholes scored this volley from a corner. And like the way he catches it, like that sounds worse players. than it was. Bradford were in the Premier, well, the Premiership. Yeah, sorry, time. Bradford were in the Premier. Uh, the premiership corner the came time, over, right? drifted to the edge of the box, and Paul Scholes just like volleys it like nonchalantly into the net. And he could do things like that. Scholes was unbelievable, like genuinely unbelievable. But at the time, it did pass people by, me included. Like Scholes and Nicky Butt were just taken for granted at, in that Man United team. But I scored massive goals, like. He wouldn't really miss. Skulls actually started off as a forward. So when I first, when Skulls broke through from United's youth set up into the first team, like he was regarded as like a number 10, basically. And he was, a, so he was a goal scorer. So it was no surprise that when he was a midfielder, he could weigh in with these goals and he'd get in behind and he'd always finish because he had this natural goal scoring instinct. But like, at the end of the day, like, um, Zidane was a Ballon d'Or winner. Um, well, the Ballon d'Or, the World Cup, the Champions League. Well, I think there's only about <laughs> 10 players that have done that, haven't there? So it is yeah. a pretty big one. For all the players that you could compare goals to, unfortunately, this might be one where he just falls short. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't know, but I do know that Beckham said that Zidane was the greatest of all time. I mean, that might have been some years back, but he, de- well, he, he grew up with Scholes, He played so. with both. So I'm going to yeah. take, take Bex's word as gospel on that. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's, it's a weird one because a lot of people have seen... Zidane in clips, right? And therefore, it's easy to make highlight reels, etc. But his just ball manipulation was off the chain. Like the ability to just keep hold of the ball in situations, just almost like nothing I've ever seen. And and I think that there's probably worth worth crediting that at, at this point. Yeah. But it was a good argument, and I, and I enjoyed yeah, I like the, it. I, like I enjoyed the ah, enjoyed the discussion. So there we go. Uh, but with that, I think it's probably time for us to call it a day. Thank you so much to Faisal for Cameron and for Zach for throwing in their hot takes. Do get in touch if you've got some for us. We're all set for next week, but we have some space in the weeks afterwards and these are going to be continuing. So make sure you send them in to us either on Discord or on Instagram or on Twitter. Um, it is harder, but I, I, I'll make them work wherever you are. <laughs> At the screen, record them, send them up, chop them in MP4s or MP3s. But, you know, the things we do for the Rank Squad, we've loved hearing your hot takes thank you very very much to mr dean jones cheers man i've been jack collins no parts this has been ranks fc thank you so much for listening today as ever we really do appreciate you and we will see you again next week gang take it easy peace final seconds of the game a chance to score and the chance has gone begging if your business's commerce platform keeps missing the target on golden opportunities Get the MVP you deserve. Get Shopify. (laughs) Shopify is the commerce platform revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide. Whether you're a garage entrepreneur or IPO ready, Shopify is the only tool that you need to start, run and grow your business without the struggle. Shopify puts you in control of every sales channel. So whether you're selling signed football boots from Shopify's in-person POS system or you're vending vintage shirts on Shopify's all-in-one e-commerce platform, you are covered. And once you've reached your audience, Shopify has the internet's best converting checkout to help you turn them from browsers to buyers. What I love about Shopify is how, no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the US. And Shopify is truly a global force powering Allbirds, Rothies, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across over 170 countries. 
Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. This is Possibility, powered by Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash ranks, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com forward slash ranks to take your business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash ranks.